I've played quite a few different benefits over the last few years for an organization called Jail Guitar Doors. And the idea is you bring musical instruments into prisons so that uh, the best behaved inmates might have the opportunity to learn how to play them. And the wardens love it. They believe it's been a useful tool towards rehabilitating these prisoners. And you might ask, you know, Otis, why do I care what happens inside of a prison? And I think that's a fair question. The way I look at it is the vast majority of the people in prisons today will be released. And they're going to move in next door to you and I. And they're going to become our neighbors. And I think it's in our own best interest to make sure that when they come out of the prison, they're in a much better mental state than they were when they went in. If this sounds like something you'd like to look into, just go to jailguitardoors.org. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee, and it is a beautiful day out. I can hear the birds singing through the window and you might be able to hear them in the background. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Gurf Morlix. Gurf is a singer-songwriter, guitar player, he's a record producer, he's produced some of my favorite albums, and he's produced a lot of the artists that I've had on this show. You can find out everything you need to know about Gurf at gurfmorlix.com. Gurf's one of those people that I run into about twice a year. And I remember I ran into him five or six years ago in Leicester, England. We played a gig together at The Musician. And we didn't get to talk too much during the gig or afterwards, but we ended up taking a taxi ride back to the hotel room late at night. We had about 15 minutes in the cab that we could just share war stories and try to catch up. And I remember we were talking really fast and laughing. But I caught up with Gurf in Austin, Texas. And he was nice enough to sit down and Tell us some good stories, and I think you're going to enjoy this. Here's Gurf Morlix. Yeah, well, you know, I used to watch the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday nights with my family sitting around. I was just a kid, and I remember seeing Elvis Presley on there. And, you know, I was four or five or something, and I just, it just knocked me out. So I, I had the bug at that point. Um... And then I always would watch those, you know, anybody with a guitar. I remember seeing Peter, Paul, and Mary and people like that on there. And, and I, you know, when the Beatles happened, that that was a uh, it was an explosion. It was a revolution overnight. It was Sunday night, and uh, and everybody watched it. And that's all everybody could talk about in school the next day. And we all formed bands that Monday morning in school, and. Uh, we picked our band members and we picked the name of the band like that morning in school on Monday. Uh, in a lot of cases, it probably would take us like a year before we could talk our parents into buying us a guitar or a set of drums or anything. But everybody started a band the next day. It was the biggest revolution I've ever seen. It was, it was Peter Case also from uh, Buffalo? Yeah, we, we 
Both grew up in a town called Hamburg, south of Buffalo, about 15 miles. And uh, Peter was maybe three or four years younger than I was. Uh, and I I kind of probably met him when he was like maybe 12. And uh, and he was wanting to be a musician, and, and I was wanting to be a musician. And, and Peter was kind of precocious. And he, I remember he had really good albums. And uh, I had read of about this album, Buddy Guy Live at the Regal, that Jeff Beck said was his favorite album. And I mentioned it to Peter one time. He goes, yeah, I got that record. And he loaned me B.B. King Live at the Regal. I couldn't believe he had it. And, uh, and I'd go over to his house after school sometimes, and I, I remember him playing a Howlin' Wolf song on an electric piano and singing um, in a little boy's voice. His voice hasn't changed yet. <laughs> but I've known him that long. And you guys play in bands together in uh, Buffalo? Occasionally. No, no, we were in rival bands in, in, in Buffalo. Um, we were in a couple of bands later on in Los Angeles. I was in the Plimsolls for the last six months of, of the band or so, playing pedal steel. Peter kind of wanted to branch out a little bit. And I played in another band with him out there, but, but we, were just, we, were, we were rivals. That professional wrestling uh, was, was really big in my life when I was like 10, maybe. And it was on every Saturday night at 6.30 or something and uh, coming from the Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo. And it was Fritz Von Erich and the Sheik and uh, the Gallagher brothers and, and, you know, good guys and bad guys. And Fritz Von Erich had the claw. And, and when, he, when he finally resorted to the claw, he'd put it on your stomach and you couldn't do anything. <laughs> and then my parents told me, that stuff's not real. And I said, you guys are crazy. <laughs> Why would they fake this? This is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. No, it's not real. Was Fritz your favorite? Uh, I liked, yeah, there was a guy from, from Buffalo named Elio DiPaolo. He ended up owning a restaurant, an uh, Italian restaurant south of Buffalo, and, and I really liked that guy. He was a good guy pretty much. He, only once in a while would he pull a little pencil out of his trunks and stab somebody in the neck with it, you know? <laughs> I was 10 years old and just into, you know, seeing guys stab somebody in the neck with a pencil. <laughs> Did Dick the Bruiser ever make it to uh Yeah, remember that guy? He was our champion in Indianapolis. He was the man in the Where's crusher. Bobo Brazil, do you remember him? Bobo Brazil. He, uh, he would cocoa butt people. He'd grab them by the head and just hit them with his forehead. And uh, and he, he was another one of my big heroes. And then I met a guy in um, North Carolina, South Carolina one time. We were hanging out, and uh, we started talking about wrestling. And he said, yeah, I'm a professional, professional wrestling um, referee. <laughs> and we started talking about these wrestlers. And I said, did you ever – here of Bobo Brazil, he goes, oh, my God, Bobo Brazil cocoa-butted me and knocked me, knocked me out. <laughs> That's the coolest thing I've heard in a long time. <laughs> well, I left Buffalo and came to Austin in 1975, and uh, it was the cosmic cowboy scene, progressive country, they called it, and, and it was great and i went to armadillo world headquarters the first night i was in town i was 24 years old and uh i think the new riders of the purple sage were playing and a week later commander cody was there and and i was just in heaven i wanted to 
play country music and rock and roll. And this was the place. And, uh, and then after about six years here, I realized that there weren't very many good gigs here. And I ended up having to go out to Los Angeles. So I moved out there in 1981. I went out there to sort of start a little new wave band. It was an opportunity. Uh, somebody said, you know, we, we, we could put this band together if you come out. So I, I did that and it was fine. That happened for a few years, but it was a really good place for me to go. Uh, I was there for 10 years and then I came back to Austin and, and I think if I'd stayed in Austin, uh, I'd, I'd be the same person. I'd be the same musician, but the perception was different because I'd spent 10 years in LA and, and had started producing records out there. It was just a different perception. The music that was going on then was like the blasters and X was happening and, uh, the Plimsolls were happening and uh, and Dwight Yoakam was just starting to happen, and then Lucinda started to happen. I met Lucinda Williams out there and uh, ended up producing her records out there. And so that's what kind of got me started as a record producer. I was playing with Lucinda, and she had these great songs, and we were trying to get a record deal, and we couldn't get a record deal. And and we were playing this, this place called Raji's in Hollywood. And uh, I remember they were paying us like, there was, there was one gig where, where I never got paid. She said, she called up the next day. She said, I got your money. Um, it's $2. We made $8 for the whole band. And so I've got your $2. And I, I said, you know, I just, I want to let that ride. You, you just keep the $2. I'll, I'll come get it from you when I need it. <laughs> and I was actually trying to figure out a way to quit. We were, it was great songs, but it just wasn't going anywhere. And then she called up one day and she said, guess what? Uh, that somebody offered me a record deal. Who are we going to get to produce it? I said, well, I'll produce it. And then I did. I slowly sort of pulled my foot out of my mouth, and I knew I could do it. But <laughs> Did you engineer it also? No. We did it at a studio called Mad Dog, and, and my friend Dusty Wakeman was engineering. And, um, but it was just, I knew I could do that. It was, it was, it's just common sense to me. It doesn't seem to be to most other people, but... You know, when I produce a record for somebody, uh, I'm really making the record for me and for the artist. And if we're satisfied, that's what we want. And hopefully we're trying to make a little piece of art, but um, we just both have to be satisfied. And then if anybody else likes it, then that's the gravy. Yeah. What other records were you producing in Los Angeles? Uh, well, I think it was just the Lucinda ones when I was out there. And then when I moved back here in 1991... Um, started getting more work from from having done Lucinda's records, and uh, and then I I quit Lucinda's band in 1996, and sort of floundered a little bit for a couple of years, hoping you know I was waiting for the phone to ring and the phone didn't ring, and uh, and I just started thinking what 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 do I do best? I make records, uh, and that was when the digital revolution happened, and you could buy an ADAT, uh, and so you know for maybe a thousand dollars or a couple thousand dollars you could have a studio in your house whereas before that you had to have seventy five thousand dollars worth of equipment so all of a sudden this digital revolution happened and, and i decided to put a studio in my house and, and hopefully turn it into a factory and be working every day and it worked well it was during south by southwest one year this is maybe seven years ago or eight years ago or something and uh this friend of mine from Nashville came over to my house and uh, it was just a nice day. We we're just having an afternoon away from the fray. 
And uh, he said, I want to play some music for you. You know, where's your, where's your CD player? And I showed him and he went in there and he put something on and he played this song called Waves by Sam Baker. And it just blew me away. And then he finished with that song and I said, who's that guy? He goes, his name is Sam Baker. He lives in Austin. I said, I want to know more about that guy. And then he took Sam off and he put another person on. And I, we got 15 seconds into the next song. And I said, no, 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 take that off. Put that other guy back on. I want to hear more Sam Baker. And I, I just, the other, I wasn't interested in the other guy. And, uh, and so then I said, tell him I want to meet him. And Sam, I think he, he mailed me a record. Maybe we talked on the phone or something. And uh, Sam mailed me his album. And I just loved it. Uh, and then he showed up at a gig of mine one time, like, I don't know, six or eight months later or something, and he introduced himself, and we just kind of hit it off. Um, he's, he's a great guy, and he's a really talented writer, really amazing. And, uh, and then he told me at one point that he had come to one of my gigs, before he made his first album, he had come to one of my gigs with a tape of his songs to try to ask if I would maybe want to produce a record for him. And he said he chickened out. He goes, nah, he, he doesn't even want to know who I am. So he didn't even introduce himself. And I, I said, Sam, it's like, I, I would have paid to make that record. You know, those, those are really great songs, really important songs. Yeah. Didn't you, uh, send his stuff to Bob Harris? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I had a, had a copy with me and I, I went to see Bob Harris and at the BBC in London and gave it to him and, Bob flipped over it, and I knew he would. I, I knew he'd love it. And, and then I got back to Austin, and I met with Sam somewhere, and he goes, I don't know what's going on, but I'm selling records like crazy in England. And I said, I know what's going on. <laughs> That's beautiful of you, man. That's yeah, a, it, just, it's, it was the thing to do. Yeah. When there's something that, that you love, you, you need to spread it around. We did a lot of gigs together we we used to like to play together we don't get to do it much anymore um we did some shows well we we went to italy together and we've been to canada together and done, done a bunch of touring and, and a bunch of gigs around here and uh we played a show one time in archer city texas which is uh where the last picture show was set and archer city is just this little town with a with a town square uh and Larry McMurtry lives there, the writer. And uh, Larry, anytime a, a storefront on the town square would come up, he would buy it and incorporate that into his bookstore, which consisted of like seven different uh, storefronts on the town square in different places. And so we accepted this uh, gig to do a, a song trading show uh in this theater, which is right next to where the last picture show theater was. They filmed the, they filmed the movie there. And, uh, and so we, we went up early that afternoon I wanted to see Larry's bookstore and it was great. You know, it was just books all over. And it was like maybe like one person in one store. And they, there were signs in there that said, uh, you know, at, we close at five thirty. You know, like five twenty-five. Just you know, gather up your books, whatever, and take them over to store number two, and you can check out there. You know, there was nobody around. There was a. Uh, we checked into this old hotel, which was just off the square, and and we we got there. There was a piece of paper on the desk and two keys, and it said, "Gurf and Sam, here's your keys. There won't be anybody in the hotel." Um, if you want to have some food or anything late at night, you know, feel free to go use the kitchen. Uh, 
turn the lights off when you're done. When you check out in the morning, there won't be anybody at the hotel. Just leave your keys here on the counter. So <laughs> thinking, this is pretty cool. So, uh, so we went to do the gig and, uh, they put us on stage and it was a really nice gig, nice theater. And, and they put a bucket of beer in between us and an opener. And we were supposed to do two 45 minute sets. And, uh, first set probably was an hour and 10 minutes or something. And, and we were popping beers and drinking them while we were playing. And I don't do that anymore, you know, <laughs> while I'm playing at least. Um, and Sam doesn't drink at all anymore, which is just fine. That's great. Um, but we were just having a really good time. And so when we came off after this hour and five minutes, hour, 10 minutes, whatever, they said, okay, we'll take a break, sell some CDs. And when you go back, you know, just, just, you only need to do like 45. And we said, okay. And, and then we went back and we were trading songs and popping beers and uh, nobody was leaving. And when we came off, I think we'd played like two hours and 10 minutes for our second show or something. <laughs> <laughs> nobody left. I mean, it was just, it was, it was a really magical gig. And then there was a bunch of people that we were kind of hanging around with afterwards talking to and, they said, "Well, let's go over to the to the hotel. There's a there's a lounge at the hotel where we're staying. We can we can have a drink in there." And so we went over there and hanging out in the lounge. And and these people were from like Wichita Falls, kind of close by there, and they knew the history of the town and and the hotel. And they said this hotel is haunted. And I said, "Really?" And they said, "Yeah, it's it's room six. Everybody knows about it. It's room six is haunted here, and something happened there." And, like I'd never seen a ghost. I would. I would love to see one, but I don't believe I ever will. And I said, "Oh man, I'm in room seven. Jeez." And we're sitting around talking for another twenty minutes or something. And I go, "There's nobody here." <laughs> I just went behind the desk and got the key to room six, and we all went up into room six and turned out the lights and sat up there for an hour talking and waiting for something to happen. Nothing happened. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have this cabin up there that my grandfather bought in 1932. It's uh, it's about 100 miles north of Toronto, and they, my parents took me up there the week I was born, and uh, would always go up there on a vacation in the summertime with my parents, and and I was doing that all my life, and uh, and then I started realizing that that's that's the only place in the world I really feel connected to the land and. And uh, it's it's kind of what I live for, and I, I go up there every year for the summer and write all my songs up there and, and go to the store in the boat and I chop wood and work on a 90-year-old building, you know, keeping that up and, and uh, fish and swim and boat a lot. And it's just what I live for. You catch muskie, northern pike, or walleye? Yeah, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, pike, muskie. Yeah, it's it's really great fishing up there, and and uh, and I've been fishing up there all my life, you know, since I was like five or so, and I just kind of know how to fish that lake. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll show up, and the people that live up there, they say, "Ah, nobody's catching any fish this year." Yeah, right. And then I just you know proceed to tear it up because I I know it so well, and actually it's kind of gotten to the point where I can catch a fish 
I, or I can be I can be doing something on the shore. I can be working or reading or whatever, and and I'll look out there and, and everything looks right to me. The sky and the the waves and and the clouds, whatever. Uh, I'll just think there's a fish out there. I'll, I'll just know it, and I'll go get my fishing rod and go out to the end of the dock and and throw my plastic worm in and and uh, on the first cast, sure enough, like more more often than not, when I know there's one out there, I'll it'll it'll take the bait and I'll set the hook and I'll catch the fish. I'll reel it in and I'll take it off. I'll let it go and I just go back to doing what I'm doing. And this this just happens over and over. I've gotten really good at it, and it, it happened last year at one point and uh, sitting on the shore with my wife and we were reading and, and she likes to fish too. And, and I just got that feeling. I said, this, there's, this is a fish moment. I went and got my rod and threw my plastic worm out and something bit on it. And I set the hook and I realized it was a big fish and uh, I finally got it in. It took me a while and it was, a, it was about a five pound largemouth, which is pretty big for up there. And, uh, and I, I took it off the hook and, you know, you put your, thumb in their mouth and you hold them by the lower lip and they hang down. And I turned to show my wife cause she, she likes to fish too. And, and she wasn't there. She'd gone up to the cabin for something and I really wanted her to see this fish. So I ran up to the cabin with it and she was in the kitchen and I walked in there and I said, look at this. She goes, wow, it's really big. What are you going to do with it? I said, I'm going to let it go. It's, it's going to be the only fish swimming around in the lake that's ever been inside of a building. <laughs> And my wife said, I think we should show it some TV then. <laughs> <laughs> so we went over to the TV and turned it on, and I, I held it there. I gave it like five seconds for each eye. I wanted it, and I turned it so it could get the, the full color experience. And then I ran it back down to the lake, and I put it in, and it swam off. <laughs> I, felt, <laughs> I felt really good about that. After that, it seemed like the fishing got even better. <laughs> and I think it was doing exactly that. Uh, it, was, it was telling the other fish, it's like, it's like you got to bite on that stupid piece of plastic that they keep throwing in. You won't believe what happens. You know? <laughs> won't believe the colors they have up there. Uh, a friend of, mine's, friend of mine introduced us, uh, me and Ray Wiley, at a show he did in Austin, he was still living in Oklahoma um, and coming down here to play once in a while. And he had sobered up and and become a really great songwriter. I mean, he, he was an okay songwriter before, but I think after he sobered up, he, he uh, sort of progressed by leaps and bounds. And I went to hear him play, and he had songs like The Messenger and Conversation with the Devil, and, and they just blew me away. And so he came out to the house one day, and we just talked, and... Um, we didn't really know each other before he came to the house. We'd met once and, and uh, he came out and he said, what are you listening to? And I, I said, I'm listening to uh, prison chain gang records. And he goes, wow, I'm listening to field hollers. And <laughs> we just both kind of hit it off from that moment. Kindred spirits. Yeah. Ray is, Ray is, um, he's going deeper and deeper into the blues, as you know. And, uh, he told me at one point. He goes, "Yeah, I think I got it down. It's this this album here is it's pretty much just one chord." And he said, "Another another couple albums. I think I'm just going to have to get to the point where I only have to grunt." 
met this guy Blaze Foley in 1976 or 1977 here in Austin. I was uh, I was playing in a band called the Goats of Arabia. And we were playing at the Hole in the Wall, and the Hole in the Wall is on Guadalupe, and there's a marquee out in front. And Blaze was driving in a borrowed car down Guadalupe, and he saw the sign saying Goats of Arabia at the Hole in the Wall, and he said, "I gotta I gotta find out about that." He just he was intrigued. So he, as I recall, he went home and woke up the person whose car it was and said, we got to go see this band. There's a band called the Goats of Arabia. So, so they showed up at the gig and, and Blaze came up to me in between songs while, while we were singing and, and he wanted, he had a guitar and a guitar case he wanted to show me. And he's a real big guy, you know, and he's kind of, kind of bent to one side. He had polio when he was a kid and you know, long-haired hippie cowboy, and I was just thinking, who is this guy, you know? And uh, I said, you know, could we just talk on a break maybe, you know? And, and he's, oh, okay. I went over and talked to him on a break, and I found out that I liked him. He was he was funny, and, and we got along. And and uh, and then he told me that he had a gig coming up in Austin. It was his first gig ever, uh, and it was coming up like that Friday afternoon or something, and, and would I come to it and would I bring a bunch of people with me? And <laughs> I said, well, you know, I'll see. I don't, you know, I don't know what you do or anything, but I'll, I'll see what I can do. And, uh, and I asked him where it was and it was in a disco. There was a disco in the building behind the hole in the wall. Stupidest place in the world for a blaze Foley gig doing a happy hour set in a disco. But I gathered up some people and we went and we just walked in not knowing what to expect. And there was, you know, there was maybe only 10 or 12 people in there, and so we just sort of sat around him at a table and he started playing these songs and I was blown away by his songs. And, and he had this leather valise with him and he would like announce a song and then he would say, Oh, this is about my friends, Billy and Marge. And then he would, Oh, I got a picture of him right here. And he would pull out, he just had all this stuff in this grip and, uh, and it was like show and tell and the songs matched the photos and, and, uh, and I was just blown away by his by his music, you know, funny songs and sad songs and heartbreak songs and, and tender love songs and and I was I was just amazed. He was really good. Blaze was homeless. He was homeless pretty much the whole time I knew him, except for a short period at the end when he got a little bit of money coming in. But um, he was homeless, and of course I had a home, and he thought that was like just a match made in heaven, you know. And uh, so he just uh, was never even discussed. He just like attached himself to me and started living on my couch. Uh, and he did for years, actually. I'd, I'd moved a few times and he would figure out where I'd gone and show up at my new house and, <laughs> and live there. Uh, and that, I mean, it, he lived on my, on my couch for years until I actually moved out to Los Angeles. And he couldn't quite make that jump, but... Um, and we became best friends and running buddies. And anytime he had a gig, I would play it with him if I wasn't playing with anybody else. And and uh, and then we moved we moved down to Houston. There was there was work in Houston, and people weren't making much money at the gigs in Austin. Imagine that. Uh, there was money in Houston, and there was people in the clubs every night. It was it was the best scene I'd ever been involved in, really, uh, in this Montrose area of Houston. And and we went down there, and Blaze just just announced himself to that scene and, and was accepted completely. He was, he was not like anybody else and he had great songs and, and we were playing 
27 nights a month, you know, in, in, in our neighborhood. It was really amazing. It's interesting that you say that Houston was, was happening. This, this is a time when the armadillo was open in Austin. and Yeah, touring bands could come here and make a lot of money or, or make some money. Um, was Mother Blue still open in Dallas? Yeah, I think it was then, um, although I never was there. Um, but the gigs in Austin were paying $35. You know, They don't pay much more than that now, a lot of them. Um, but you could go to, you could go to Houston and make $75 or a hundred dollars. You know, there was, uh, Houston was booming at the time and, uh, it was just a really good scene. There was, there was money and there was people in the clubs every night. When, when Blaze and I were living in Houston and in Austin together, um, he wasn't drinking all that much. He, I mean, we, we drank beer every night in the bars and, and maybe some tequila. If we were playing a gig, you know, we'd, we'd be doing that. But uh, uh, then we'd go home and we'd go to sleep and wake up sober the next day and everything was just great. Uh, and then Blaze met Towns Van Zant in probably 1979, I think. And, you know, everybody that met Towns really idolized him. Um, he was an amazing character uh, and known for his drinking, among other things. You know, his, his songs were incredible. And, and uh, Blaze was completely enamored with Towns, and, and they hit it off and became really good friends. And I think it had a sort of a bad effect on Blaze. He tried to become Towns. He, tried, he started drinking vodka. He started binge drinking. Um, and it got bad and he started having behavioral problems and, uh, you know, I saw him get thrown out of bars a lot for, uh, you know, for good reasons. And I saw him get beaten up. I'd, I'd haul him out of a bar after someone would beat him up because, and he deserved it, you know, but he was my friend and I loved him. So I'd take him home and patch him up, you know, and, uh, it just kind of got worse and worse. And he started this long, slow downhill slide into alcoholism and homelessness. And, and really it ended up with him being murdered in 1989. And, and I was in Los Angeles and uh, I got home one night and there was a phone call on my answering machine and I checked it and it was from Lucinda. And she said, uh, I got something I want to tell you. I'll call you in the morning. And the message stopped and I just started crying. And like, I knew it was blaze. I didn't, I didn't know if he was dead or not, but I knew he was, dead or hurt bad, and I couldn't sleep that night, and I called her the next morning, and she told me he'd been shot and killed. And I wasn't surprised. Do you want to describe what happened? Well, he had a, there was an old man that Blaze had befriended that, that lived in this neighborhood that Blaze was living in. He actually, Blaze had gotten a little bit of money from Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard recording If I Could Only Fly. He'd gotten a check, I think, and had enough money to uh, rent a room in a house. And I saw him, you know, maybe a month or so before he died. I was here playing a show with Lucinda and, and found Blaze, and he showed me his room, and he was really proud of his first time, you know, in, in like 10 years or something, that he'd actually had a place to live. And uh, he was really proud of it. Um, and there was an old man down the street that was Blaze's drinking buddy. And... This guy had a son who was a, a junkie, and the junkie used to abuse his father. He'd beat him up and cash his welfare checks and Social Security checks, I guess, and, 
and take the money and use it for heroin. And, and he was just, just a scumbag. And, uh, blaze told me that he had had a, a couple of altercations with this kid and, and, uh, and apparently they're, they're, the police had been involved and Blaze was supposed to not be around that guy's house. Uh, but Blaze, Blaze had been sober for, I don't know, six, eight weeks. I don't know how long it was before, um, before he died. I, when I saw him last, he was sober. And he was great. He was making art. He had all his energy. And, uh, and then he fell off the wagon some point after that. And he was up drinking with his old man, drinking buddy friend in the guy's house at five o'clock in the morning and the, the junkie kid came home and uh, there was some sort of an argument and, and uh, the guy went and got a rifle and shot blaze and killed him. That was that. Did you get to attend the funeral? Yeah. I flew back for the funeral. It was unbelievable. They, they had a benefit to get him out of the funeral home. They, they had to try to put together money to get him out and, they got him into the funeral home, but they couldn't get him out, and they were doing benefits, and people were finding money anywhere they could to try to pay off the funeral home, and and uh, went to the funeral. It was about 15 degrees, and it was just brutally cold, and, and uh, more people in that funeral home than I could possibly believe. I mean, he had so many friends. It was, it was incredible, and... Uh, and when the funeral was over, we went out and I went out the side door with my friends from Fredericksburg that I was hanging out with, and and we got in the in the the little motorcade. Well, there wasn't a motorcade; there were no police. We couldn't afford a police escort to the cemetery. I, I'd been told where the cemetery was, but I didn't really know exactly where it was. And with no police escort, you know, we were like the third car behind the hearse or something, and. Uh, we came to the first stoplight, the first red light on Congress, and the hearse made it through the red light, and we didn't. And then that was that, you know. Then we're, so then we're driving along, trying to find, trying to catch up with the hearse and the couple of cars that had made it through, and we couldn't find them. And I sort of had an idea where it was, so we we're trying to drive down south, look for a cemetery, and and then I'd see a line of cars coming back at us this way, and and. I'd recognize the people and, and there were, so there were like, you know, as many cars as could get through a green light. There were these groups of cars that were just, they were crossing sideways. They were coming back at me. <laughs> then we'd see a cemetery and I, oh, let's try that cemetery. And we'd drive all the way through it and there was nothing there, not this cemetery. And, and I would say that of, of all the people that I figure tried to find the cemetery, I think maybe only a 10th of them found the cemetery. And then we got there and it was 15 degrees and uh, Kimmy Rhodes was singing she started she just standing there all of a sudden this and i hadn't met her blaze had told me about her have you ever met kimmy rhodes no i haven't she lives in austin and she's a pretty incredible singer and and she just started singing and, and she she sang you know amazing grace and and it just made the hair stand up on the back of my neck she was so great and it was just such a perfect moment and and then people started coming up and they had rolls of duct tape and they started putting duct tape on the coffin blaze was Blaze was um, obsessed with duct tape. And it was just, it was really tender, but it was 15 degrees. It was just brutal. We just kind of had to get out of there as quick as we could after that. I've never heard people talk about uh, Blaze in that context with towns. 
Did you like Towns? Did you guys get along? And uh, the fact that he's a bad influence on on Blaze, did that hurt your relationship with him in any way? Or You know, I think Towns and Blaze were bad influences on each other. Uh, I also think they were probably really good influences on each other. But the drinking thing was not healthy, and and uh, and trying to emulate Towns killed Blaze, and it killed Towns, really, I think. Um, I knew Towns a little bit. We hung out some, um, mostly through Blaze. Um, he came to Houston one time when I was living down there with Blaze, and I guess Blaze got him this gig. There was a club called Corky's, and... Uh, they booked towns for a Friday and a Saturday night. And they were a little um, worried about it because towns had a reputation, you know, he, he might or might not do a good show. And uh, so they were, they were kind of concerned and we put together a big band to back him up. It was like a seven piece band. And of course we had no rehearsal or anything. Maybe, maybe we rehearsed for an hour before the show or something, but um, Friday night towns showed up and he had a saxophone with him that he bought in a pawn shop. And he put it up on the stage, and, and uh, he never picked it up. We, we did fine that night, and, and the club was, was really happy, and the people were really happy. The, the saxophone was up there, but he, and he looked at it a couple of times, but he never picked it up. And, uh, and then when the gig was done, we hung out in the bar till like 5 in the morning, like we did every night back then, just drinking and talking to the owners and the staff. And and uh, and really what happened was at 5 o'clock, you know, the owner said, well, we got to go home. And so we all went home except for Towns, who went out, as he was wont to do sometimes. And uh, somehow he managed to go out and stay up all night drinking brandy. And uh, we showed up at 9 o'clock the next night for the gig, and Towns wasn't there, and owners were starting to get worried. And then he... He showed up maybe 10 minutes late, you know, and he said, no, I'll do it. And he, he was loaded. He'd, he'd been drinking since, since he left the bar at five in the morning. And, uh, and he was, um, he was kind of out of it. Well, he wasn't doing a really terrible show, but it was getting worse and worse as the night went along. And I'd heard him pick up the saxophone before the, before the set that night and he tried to play it and he couldn't make a sound out of it. It was just like, you know, like a, like a nine year old child picking up a saxophone <laughs> and trying to, trying to see if they can get a note out of it. He couldn't really even get a note out of it, but he had it up there leaning against the bass drum on stage that night. And, uh, and the show just got worse and worse. And, uh, people started asking for their money back. Crowd was leaving. And, uh, and then band members started leaving the stage <laughs> I was the bass player, and uh, and I I really I I dig the freak show aspect of these kind of things. You know, I was I was kind of into it. And at one point, Towns was singing one of his songs, and a little switch went off in his brain. And in the middle of a in, in the middle of a phrase, he switched over from English English to this Cajun gibberish, and he never spoke another word of English all night. <laughs> and apparently, he was want to do that sometimes. I've, I've heard stories that he, he had this Cajun gibberish that he would go into when he got drunk to a certain point. And he went into it, and he just kept singing his songs. You know, he's singing like Poncho and Lefty, but it's Cajun gibberish. And I, th I thought, this is really incredible. <laughs> and 
And so by this point, most of the people in the club have left. And then all the people in the band had left except me and Towns. I'm playing bass, and Towns puts the guitar down and picks up the saxophone. And he said, let's play... Um, he started playing You Got to Move by Mississippi Fred McDowell. Blues song. And singing it in Cajun gibberish. It's just me on the bass going, bum, 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 bum. And he's singing in Cajun gibberish. And then he picks up the saxophone and starts playing a sax solo. I swear, I swear, I swear he was channeling Charlie Parker. It was, it was incredible. He played the best jazz saxophone solo I'd ever heard in my life. <laughs> I, just, I just couldn't believe this. This is, this is my life. I'm doing this. And when he finished the song, he threw the sax down on the floor, and he fled out the front door, and I didn't see him again. We didn't get paid for either night. And I ran into him in an airport maybe a month later. Hadn't seen him since. And I walked up and I said, hey, Towns, how's the saxophone coming? And he said, I hung it in a tree and I shot it full of holes. <laughs> and I completely believed him. <laughs> Is there any history of him playing saxophone? That you heard anybody else ever say they heard him play sax? No, although people people had seen the sax. Yeah, I, th I think the only time it was ever heard in public. I, you know, someone told me they saw him practicing it one time or something. <laughs> it's a horrible sound when somebody can't play. Oh yeah, but then he just started channeling. But he was like that, you know. He had special powers. You know, he wasn't uh, he wasn't normal. He was beyond normal. Gurf, I appreciate you uh, stopping by and chatting with me. Yeah, this has been great. I appreciate it, man. And we'll go fishing sometime. I would love to do that. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Gurf for coming over and chatting with me in Austin, Texas. And you can find out everything you need to know about Gurf at gurfmorlicks.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can get one of my fine art photographic prints that would look great in your living room or office. You can get one of Amy's records or you can get one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. It'll help us move up in the search rankings and help a lot more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.